All right. Good evening, everyone. Thank you so much for coming out this evening. What a nice crowd. It's just great to have all these. Lamp. We got so used to an empty store and just a camera. <laughs> it's kind of hard to readjust, but I'm delighted. So, But I do want to thank all of you who are watching this virtually or will watch it for joining us as well. So Stacy, this is her second book after mm -hmm. A Flicker in the Dark. And when A Flicker in the Dark published, we had to do a Zoom event. And we shipped her a ton of books to sign. Unfortunately, not nearly as big a ton as it should have been. Because <laughs> as you know, A Flicker in the Dark did extremely well. But anyway, we have to thank her for, um, for helping us by signing all those books. And we're so pleased to actually now meet her yeah. in public. Thank you so much for having me. This is my very first trip to Arizona, and I wish it was longer than 24 hours. <laughs> but you can fix that. Yeah, I know. I'll be back. I promise. You can, indeed. Yeah. In fact, she lives on the other coast. So, right. And did not get caught in yesterday's air disasters. So, you know, uh, now yeah. I have to really start thinking about because um, normally flying into Phoenix is not a weather thing, but the way, way things are going is becoming more of an issue. Yeah. I, uh, I was telling Barbara, I'm on a 10 day tour. And yesterday was my only flight. I flew into Nashville on um, Tuesday night and or yeah, Tuesday night. And the rest of my flights for the next 10 days are all morning flights. So I just got extremely lucky that I wasn't affected by that yesterday. Um, but other than that, it's been smooth sailing. So let's talk about your new book, yeah, which sure. is sort of the reason we're here, yeah. right? Um, <laughs> and you said um, when we were talking previously that you had a couple of interesting stories. So why don't you tell us about the inspiration for the book? Yes, of course I will. So um, for those of you, actually, I would love, has anyone ha happened to read it yet? It's been out for like two days. Okay. <laughs> okay, great. So for those of you who don't know, um, All the Dangerous Things is my second book. It tells the story of Isabel Drake, who um, wakes up one morning to find herself living in her own worst nightmare. Her toddler son has disappeared out of his crib in the middle of the night while she was asleep in the next room. And like any mother, she dedicates her life to trying to find him including um, going to true crime conferences across the country to tell the story of his disappearance on stage to an audience in hopes that someone somewhere will will know something and come forward. Um, but as a result of this, she develops a pretty severe case of insomnia that leaves her questioning uh, everything, really, including her own memories and mind. So this story, kind of like all my stories, it's not one big idea that comes to me, but a variety of little seeds that eventually kind of grow into something cohesive. And... Um, Back in 2019, I read an article in the Washington Post um, that followed around a man at a true crime conference, but he was not there as an attendee. He was there as the brother of a woman who had been murdered in the 80s in a string of unsolved murders called the Colonial Parkway murders. And yeah, and they were, um, it was like 35 years, um, going on about 35 years of being unsolved. And he had pretty much dedicated his life to trying to seek justice for his sister. At, at that point, he had quit his job. Um, he was traveling around to true crime conferences. He was, you know, trying to get on podcasts, trying to get on Dateline, because he knew that if he could reach a huge audience, the chances of her case, um, he just didn't want it to stay cold. And it was really interesting the way the article juxtaposed the attendees of these conferences who were essentially there for entertainment with um, the family members of the victims who were there for like networking and trying to get their story out. And he was clearly going through kind of this moral dilemma of, um, you know, he didn't want to be exploitative, but he also knew there was a benefit in being up there. And he uh, wanted to do everything in his power to, to solve his sister's murder, but he also, you know, when are you tipping into the territory of obsession? When is it taking over your life? So I thought his story was so interesting. And that ultimately became the first chapter of all the dangerous things when we meet Isabel um, at this true crime conference and kind of forcing herself to swallow this sick feeling and get up on stage and, and tell her son's story to all these people. Um, the second little seed came about Six months later, when I was having a hard time falling asleep, uh, I, I don't think I would go so far as to call myself an insomniac, but I'm one of those people that tends to ruminate. Like I lay in bed in the dark and I just kind of toss and turn and think about things. And my husband, of course, is the exact opposite. He falls asleep in like a second flat. And sometimes when he is sleeping, he slips into a sleep so deep that he starts to talk. And it's usually pretty benign. Like he just kind of murmurs a word or two. Um, but this one particular night, he 
it's like midnight, maybe, you know, 1230. He sits straight up in bed and he turns on the light on our bedside table. And I was like, what, what are you doing? Like, why did you turn on the light? And he turns to look at me, eyes open and just says, she needs to see where she's going. I know, I know. And so, of course, I was like, who needs to see where she's going? Like, is she in the room with us? Who are you talking about? And he woke up and he had no idea what he was talking about. He was like, I don't know. Like, I don't remember saying that. And two things happened as a result of that. One, he fell asleep in a second and I was wide awake for hours. Think, yeah, right. I know. Thinking about this, I had this weird mental image of a woman in a nightgown walking around in the middle of the night who, for some reason, needed to see where she was going. And I started thinking, like, who is this woman? Why is she walking around? And it um, got me thinking about sleepwalking. And because um, I was lying there wide awake, the thought of sleepwalking and insomnia in the way they're so different started to kind of run through my mind. And I thought, you know, a, a sleepwalker, they're essentially losing control of their body and how unsettling would that be not to know, you know, have people tell you the next morning things you said and did not remember. But as an insomniac, if it gets severe enough, you're losing control of your mind. You can't really trust your own, your memories and your instincts. And that became kind of the second piece of this book. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> Gee, there's an opera um, written about insomnia, La Sonambula, and it's mm -hmm. a really interesting opera to watch because this woman gradually disintegrates, you know, yeah. as she gets tarder and tarder. It gives a chance for the soprano, you know, to claw the scenery and generally um, emote mm -hmm. and so forth. But yeah, I mean, it's it's a, a fairly well-known condition and very unfortunate if you suffer from it. There oh, yeah. are even sleep clinics. I'm trying to think what book it is. Is it? Is it your book? I'm trying. I'm, there, I'm hmm. blurring here. Where somebody actually goes to a sleep clinic? No, not in this book. But I'm sure there's tons of books written about insomnia because it's so interesting. There's another book out this month that involves a sleep clinic. I'm going to have to try. <laughs> Sorry, I've read so many yeah. that um, I have trouble. But it it does um, involve, and I think. I'm not mistaken. There are murders that arise as a consequence. Of course, yeah. In the, yes, <laughs> in the sleep. Right, exactly so. Um, so sleepwalking, what do you know about it? Well, I did all kinds of research on sleep for this book, of course, both sleepwalking and insomnia. Um, for sleepwalking, I mean, I learned it's actually fairly common in kids. Has anyone here ever sleepwalked? Anyone? Yeah, yeah, yeah. I mean... Say a sleepwalk, sleepwalk. Uh, I don't really know what the past tense of that is. <laughs> my uh, copy editor probably knows because she had to edit it in my book. But um, yeah, it's about a third of kids will sleepwalk at some point in their lives. And it's not particularly uncommon to have it carry over into adulthood. So um, that's something that I had Isabel go through. She was a sleepwalker as a kid. And um, I thought it would be interesting to have her experience both like the sensation of waking up in the morning and having things moved and not remember moving them or um, waking up in a strange place and not knowing how she got there but then when she's older and her son goes missing and she kind of develops the opposite problem she can't sleep she has these memories of her past and when she had um you know similar issues that would m manifest in in different ways um Insomnia, though, I did a lot of research on sleep deprivation and kind of like the psychological effects of that. Um, I think the most interesting thing I learned is probably that the CIA used to use sleep deprivation as a form of criminal torture. And um, they were only authorized to do it for up to eight days because anything past that was considered like cruel and unusual punishment. Um, but even after 48 hours, the prisoners would start to hallucinate. They would um, they would, you know, have severe memory disruptions. They would have psychotic breaks after two days, really. So um, writing a character who hasn't slept properly in a year was a fun challenge. <laughs> well. One of the, the things that fuels this kind of a story is the reliability of narrators. Yeah. So you found yet a different way to yeah. create an unreliable narrator, right? Because if she, she's subject to all this, you don't know that you can trust what she says. You don't know that she can trust what she knows even. Mm -hmm. So I don't did um, are, were you consciously looking for that kind of a different unreliable narrator or you know, did it just fall into your lap? 
I think I was consciously looking for it because I like an unreliable narrator, but I like finding, I love when I find a book that does it in a unique and different way. And I liked the idea of Isabel other people don't trust her because of her sleep issues. I mean, um, you know, her, her husband and the detective working the case, they, they don't really b trust anything she says because she has, she's, there's this brain fog that's always there. But at the same time, she doesn't really know if she can trust herself either. And I thought that was really interesting um, to not even know if your own memories or instincts or intuitions are trustworthy because you're just so perpetually exhausted. And then, of course, that um, concept of exhaustion and sleep deprivation kind of tied nicely into the motherhood angle because as a, you know, relatively new mother, um, yeah. that's something that she was dealing with with her son, too. So you could take it another step, too, and say that if she is in that shape, she may not be interpreting what anybody else says to her or anybody else's memories, and that's part of the story, right? Right. Mm -hmm. So not only can't she not trust herself, but she isn't necessarily able to trust anyone she else. trust anyone, yeah, yeah. And it was kind of fun playing with that because she does feel really isolated throughout the whole book. She feels very alone, um, like, you know, people are forgetting about her and, and her Mason's case. Um, and it was fun illustrating that because she spends a lot of time in the book by herself in the middle of the night. And so I think if you're feeling isolated and then, you know, you're awake at three in the morning and no one else is awake, what's lonelier than that? Um, so it was, it was fun to, to play with that kind of making her be by herself so often. So one way she's trying to keep this case alive um, and keep looking for Mason is the the true crime thing yes. and the podcast, yeah. which we'll get to. But any of you who read a lot of British mystery will be aware that when this happens, they do what's called a public appeal. And they generally do it on television, and generally it's very scripted. Um, you know, the mother and the father, if the father's involved, they, you know, make all kinds of cheerful things. And I'm trying to think what it was I saw recently, something on TV where it turns out that the appeal that that the, the husband, since I can't remember it, this will not be a spoiler for you, right? <laughs> since I can't identify it. But when they made the appeal, the stepfather, what he said sounded like he wanted to connect with the kid, but actually what he was saying to the kid was, I'm going to come get you um, because the kid disappeared to escape the stepfather. But it was really interesting that the appeal, mm. the appeal had a yeah. two-way... You know, it looked like yeah, it that was, is interesting. but it turned out that, and so the kid was even more scared and, yeah. even, you know, and ran. But I'm finding that recently um, true crime and podcasters are becoming very big in crime fiction and podcasters are becoming sleuths, you know, yeah. um, which is different than in a cozy world where, you know, it's the baker or, you know, or <laughs> the cat sitter or, well, I mean, and that works and though, you know, yeah. they're a lot of fun. I've just, you know, I've just read one I really enjoyed. Um, but the point is, why are they sleuthing? You know, I mean, why aren't they just baking? And, <laughs> and so the, the podcasting, I think, you know, it's a variation of the woman sleuth thing that was so big. Any of you can remember back in the 90s when people like Sarah Paretsky and Sue Grafton and Marsha Muller and all were writing amazing mysteries. And these almost always were private investigators, women who took on the job of private investigator. Almost always they had either a family member or a boyfriend or who was in law enforcement because private eyes can't arrest anybody, right? So mm -hmm. if you were going to make it work, you had to have. Mm -hmm. And that's not any different if you go back and think about it. Lord Peter Whimsey, you know, there's a classic private investigator, but his brother-in-law happily worked for Scotland Yard. What an amazing thing. So he was able to do all this detecting, and yet, you know, somebody came in at the end to arrest yeah. the guy. Yeah. So do you think that the podcaster, because there's so much interest in it, is, is going to sort of replace the female private an investigator or at least run parallel yeah that's an interesting question i don't know if it'll replace it but i think for for me when i thought about doing a podcaster as an element of this story you you kind of mentioned this earlier it's like the idea of this armchair detective this amateur sleuth who mm -hmm. has an interest in a case and then they just set out to solve it and because they're a civilian essentially they aren't subjected to the same red tape that right. investigators are so you can kind of from a 
a story angle have they can get away with doing more mm -hmm. than the police can but on the flip side you know there's questions of um they're probably not qualified to be doing some of this stuff, right? Like they don't understand, um, they don't have the legal knowledge to understand evidence they might uncover. They can inject their own bias into the podcast. And if it blows up like something like cereal, for instance, then you're influencing the opinions of millions of people. And are you really qualified to be doing that? So, um, yeah, it, it's, it is interesting. I, um, did a listen to a lot of podcasts to research for this book and there was has anyone uh, listened to the teacher's pet by any chance it's australian actually an australian mm -hmm. podcast and it's about um a woman who goes missing and the case went cold and this journalist uh decided to do a podcast about it because he was convinced that the husband had did it um and apparently the husband was kind of the, the main suspect of investigators, but they hadn't been able to arrest him. So he was sort of getting away with it. And um, after the podcast came out four months later, the husband was arrested. So it was successful, but there was so much bias in the podcast when it came time for the husband to go to trial, they couldn't find any unbiased jurors. And so they had to take the podcast off the air and he just got a trial by a single judge. So it's, uh, I don't know, I find it interesting that like the, the trickle down effects are so great when it comes to something like that. One person who wants to, you know, find the truth or tell a story and it can affect so much down the line. Yeah, but a lot of that works because the reach of podcasting is so enormous now I mean, social media is the yeah. same. You know, if you were doing what I was talking about earlier, the little appeal, it might just reach a community, you know, but these, this all the ways we can communicate now in these platforms are so yeah. vast that even if somebody has gone across country, for example, mm -hmm. they can't really run away from. Right. Um, so I think that's a fascinating thing. Yeah. And there's no barrier to entry. I mean, anyone with a yeah. iPhone can make a podcast, you know, uh, which can be good and bad, I think. <laughs> Maybe some people don't need that power. <laughs> I don't know. I love podcasts. We're, yeah. up, we're up to like 220-some thousand podcast downloads from these conversations. Oh, wow. We turn them all into podcasts. You can go to our website and click on podcast, and there they all are. So obviously there's a huge interest yeah. in just listening to authors talk. Yeah. And if you think about it, you know, let's say you're driving or you're knitting or you're gardening or something and you don't want to sit there and watch something, you can listen to it. So yeah. they actually refreshed the page the other day. I went to look at it and I thought, where am I? You know, it's a completely different <laughs> um, look. So the podcast, I think it's called Podbean. Okay. They're doing their own thing in the same way that there's an audiobook company called Libro FM. Yeah. Many of you may know that. And if you listen to audiobooks, if you buy from them, um, I'm trying to remember how it exactly works. But anyway, they remit some of the money for the audiobook, a little bit of it, to the bookstore, which I think is is really nice. And they have promotions. And yeah, I think I think it's the link that that you use is connected to us. Yeah, it's. Um, I was actually just I just found out about them a couple months ago. Yeah. But you go when you make your account, you pick your favorite local bookstore, right? And so it. then when you um rent the audiobook they kick back a portion i think they're the only audiobook the only company yeah. like that that'll kick back a portion of their profits to the local stores so it's pretty cool it is but you know it's also a pretty shrewd business decision because what happens is all of us bookstores do their marketing for them you know mm -hmm. so, I mean, so they don't like have we to are spend. right now right. <laughs> <laughs> exactly <laughs> yeah. so anyway it's a you know it's not a bad yeah. business plan all the way around so mason talk to us a little bit about mason because he is after all the the crux of this story mm -hmm. is that he has been snatched or we think he's been snatched in the middle of the night. Yeah. Yeah. So Mason, it's funny. He's he's missing throughout the whole book. So he's really barely in it. But you get to know him, I think, a little bit through um, memories, Isabel's memories of him. And she talks about, um, you know, his final night a lot. And kind of like it was a night like any other. You know, she she fed him. She read him a story. She put him to bed and she replays it over and over and over, like constantly second guessing. Was there something different did i overlook something did i leave did i keep his window unlocked like you know constantly second guessing him but um yeah it is funny because he is the the thing the, the person around which the whole story sort of revolves but he's also very much not there i mean he's gone for the whole book um it was uh 
kind of hard to write about him because you never want to imagine something bad happening to a little kid, you know. <laughs> How old is he when he disappears? I, he's a year and a half. Yeah. So even if they were to find him, she would have missed some really crucial months in his life because the child a year and a half, a year later, is Gone. a totally different mm -hmm. child, right? Yeah. And actually, I there is a point in the book where Isabel makes the... Um, she has a thought where, you know, a, a missing child is kind of in many ways immortal because if, you know, a child passes away, they, you know, you, you at least you have some, you know, you have answers. But for her, Mason is gone, like exactly as he was the last time she ever saw him. And even though one year later, he's a completely different kid, you know, he's a whole year older, but in her mind, he's still that Mason of 18 months. And um, she struggles with that quite a bit so not even, knowing even if she were to find him she wouldn't get back yeah. the child that she lost yeah and i think that's really poignant yeah with that length of time why did you decide any year you could have made it a month or you know yeah. much shorter a lot of it had to do with uh the sleep aspect of it um i wanted it to be a really long amount of time that she had not been sleeping. And I mean, like I said, with that research, it could have been a month and a month of sleep is a very long time. But I think a year, if you have, you know, a loved one go missing coming up on the year anniversary is this horrible milestone that you kind of don't ever want to reach. Like if you don't have a conclusion after a year, it's hard to keep holding on hope. Um, but then there's also the milestone of it's been a whole year since she's had meaningful rest. And like, that's a long time to not be sleeping. Um, that, yeah, I don't know. I mean, a lot of times there's not a real concrete answer other than I, I thought that would be a good milestone for her to be hitting. I mean, they have a, a vigil for, you know, it's a, they kind of call, she doesn't want to call it a vigil, but she calls it a vigil for Mason on the one year anniversary. It's been a year since he's been missing and the city kind of comes out and, and, you know, lifts him up in thought and stuff. So I wanted things like that little moments where Mason could be injected into the story in, in little ways since he's not actually there. I found it interesting because I read her book just before I read Jane Harper's new book, Exiles, which she'll be here February 1st, yay, from mm -hmm. Australia to talk about. And mm -hmm. exactly the same thing happens, except it's a wife. Uh -huh. And it's a year, and yeah. it's the year anniversary that prompts everybody to get together and try to recover memories of everybody who was present when she disappeared the first time. Yeah. And, you know, so I found, I, but it's different with an adult. Yeah. Like that's what I was thinking is that if they find her, you know, she was already an adult. A year is a long time. But if they find her, she won't be that different. But it's never going to be okay if they find Mason. Right. It's yeah. Just not. I mean, it's half his life there that he's been gone. Ooh, half his life. That is awesome. Mm. Right. Yeah. So I don't know that there's much else we can say without completely spoiling. This I know. Book. I know. Um, where 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 are we? I mean, what 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 geographic place are we in in this book? Yeah, it's split pretty evenly between uh, Savannah, Georgia, and Beaufort, South Carolina. Has anyone oh, been to? Beaufort. Yes, yeah. many times. Yeah, so I live in Charleston, um, so pretty close to both of those places, and my husband's whole family is in Savannah, so we visit them pretty often, and you drive past if not through Beaufort to get to Savannah you from get Charleston. A ticket almost every time oh, because yeah. <laughs> the principal <laughs> revenue as far as I can tell yeah. in Beaufort is it's traffic fines. No kidding. You know, there's the harbor and there's the trees with all the mm -hmm. money and all and if you don't if you don't really pay attention to like I don't remember thirty miles an hour or something, they're there. Oh yeah, I've gotten a few tickets on the way to Savannah. Yeah, yeah, but it's it's beautiful country. It is, it is, and I love writing about the South because it's um. One, it's what I know. I mean, they say write what you know, and I, that's what I know. It's where I live. But there's something so, it's both beautiful and kind of creepy at the same time. Yeah. Like you were saying, the Spanish moss, I mean, right. it kind of looks like cobwebs it's hanging a from parasite, the trees. But nonetheless, yeah, right, there it is. Right, yeah. and there's so much, like there's these old... Um, graveyards everywhere and it's it's history but it's a little eerie that they're all over the place and these you know wrought iron gates that are kind of rusty and uh, I don't know if you look at them in a certain light it, it kind of yeah well Savannah was the backwater for a long time which is a good thing because mm -hmm. the beautiful Regency architecture <laughs> excuse me uh, was preserved it was sort of like Tallinn Estonia it was so poor that nobody ever fixed it and now it's this tourist landmark because it's still like you know, 17th or 16th century Estonia. Mm -hmm. And Savannah really, really 
was sleepy until uh, in the Garden of Good and Evil. And yeah. that book alone brought so many people to Savannah with tourist money and so forth. Do any of you, do any of you read it? Do any of you remember? It's one of the really great true crime books. It was a massive bestseller. Yeah. It was on the bestseller list for like three or four years as number one. If you haven't read it, go and find it. I'm sure it's still in print. It's called In the in the Garden of Good and Evil. Mid, yeah, Midnight in the Garden. Or is it Midnight? Midnight, yeah, in, midnight the Garden in the Garden of Good and yeah. Evil. Thank you. And it's really a super book. Yeah. But so it, Savannah has a kind of a, a ghostly quality. And even though you think of it as a port, right, it's actually up the river. It's mm-hmm. not on the ocean. There's a long river that connects it, unlike yeah. Charleston. So, yeah. um, And your point about it being a ghostly city, well, one, I don't know. Has anyone here read A Flicker in the Dark, my debut? Yeah, so Midnight in the Garden of Good and Evil um, has a, it plays a role in a flicker in the dark um the main character chloe is reads it and it's referenced a few times and um two savannah is actually the most technically it's thought to be the most haunted city in the country Mm -hmm. um and that has a plays a small role in all the dangerous things just uh alluding to the idea of death just kind of hovering over the place a little bit um so yeah it's interesting hasn't buford become a big retirement area Hilton Head and Buford, yeah. they're not that far apart. Yeah, no, they're not far apart at all. Hilton Head used to be sort of a playground for people. When I lived in Virginia, we used to go down there and do that. But I think that that whole area became very big, partly because North and South Carolina have very beneficial tax laws for <laughs> retirees, like no estate tax and other stuff, very low income yeah. tax. So they've attracted a huge, sort of like Sun City, but on the other end of the yeah, you know, the spectrum. Yeah. Right. I don't know much about that, but <laughs> well, no, I, 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 I can see Buford. I can still see driving yeah. by the harbor, and, yeah. you know, full of boats. It's and also it was just gorgeous. You know, just a beautiful place to live. So I think when people, you know, decide to retire, it's kind of a natural place to go. Right. So since you live there, mm-hmm. this is a natural place for you to be setting the story. But yeah. you know, is there does the story take on some atmosphere because the place is so? peaceful and so beautiful and all and then this horrible event it it, does it like rend the fabric of the community some yeah yeah i think you know savannah it's funny it's not a it's not a tiny town but it has a small town feel so i think when something like this happens in a town like savannah it's kind of like everybody knows it's sort of an, an everybody knows everybody sort of town and so the ripple effects are pretty great um and then isabel her past she grew up in beaufort and there's kind of another tragedy that happens in her childhood that's unearthed throughout the book and beaufort is is similar in that way it's a pretty small little town um you know people who live in places like that don't expect terrible things to happen so when they do they're forced to reckon with it happening so close to home so, do you want to talk a little bit about Flicker in the Dark since you weren't actually here for that? Sure. And since we don't have any copies because I screwed up and I'm really sorry. <laughs> I thought we had some and we didn't. The paperback just came out on Tuesday. So, yeah. It did. Yeah. And it went. Yeah. <laughs> At least here. Yep. <laughs> yeah. So, Flicker in the Dark um, was my debut. It came out a year ago yesterday, actually, uh, which is crazy that it's been out now for 365 days. Um, And that tells the story of Chloe Davis, who is a psychologist in Baton Rouge, Louisiana, um, who uncovers a piece of evidence as a child that ends up convicting her father as a serial killer um, in in her small Louisiana hometown. So again, with the uh, year anniversary, 20 years later, after her father uh, goes to prison, she uh, is engaged to be married. She runs her own uh, thriving practice and um, girls mysteriously start to go missing again. So she's kind of thrust back into uh, her past and is kind of fighting against the clock to figure out what's going on and, and who might be behind it. Oh, there's always a past, isn't there? Yeah, for some reason, <laughs> I like writing about characters with troubled past. And for some reason, I like writing about characters with very dysfunctional families. My family's great. <laughs> I, lo- I think I put my acknowledgments like, sorry, mom and dad, like this has nothing to do with you guys. But I love writing about very flawed parents for some reason or another. <laughs> Hmm. <laughs> we might need to unpack that. <laughs> well, I'm assuming most of you are here because you read A Flicker in the Dark or just here to be groupies or no. Some <laughs> of you came so that you could read A Flicker in the Dark and I've let you down. But um, <laughs> So anybody want to, without doing spoilers, comment about Flicker in the Dark and how it, what it meant to you? 
I see you holding your breath now. Come on. Yeah. Mm. <laughs> oh, thank okay. you. And why? Oh, thank you. Yeah, sure. So, um, a flicker in the dark was, I guess, similar in all the dangerous things. It's a handful of little things that somehow like they click and they become something cohesive, but I've always been interested in criminal psychology. So in college, I took a abnormal psychology class where I learned all about like psychopaths and sociopaths and all the terrible things that they do. And that led to a, for some reason that led to a fascination with serial killer psychology, because when you come, when you look at like violent crime, usually it's committed for, a reason that's linked to some kind of understandable emotion like jealousy or greed or uh, vengeance or love, you know, but when it comes to serial killers, there's not a motivation tied to it that a normal person can really understand. And so I think that's why people are so interested in them because we just don't get it. And I don't think we'll ever get it. And so I was watching a documentary, uh, one day, uh, th this was years ago now, um, about serial killers, of course. And, uh, a picture of Dennis Rader walking his daughter down the aisle at her wedding came up and Dennis Rader is uh, the BTK serial killer. And, um, at that time he, uh, had not been caught of course. And he had been an active serial killer for, you know, 20 years, maybe he'd killed 10 people and nobody knew, including his, his wife and his daughter. So, um, that, that was kind of the initial seed because that was such an intimate moment and she didn't know. And I just wondered how she must feel looking back at that picture and thinking like, I never knew him at all, you know? And, and, uh, so that was how Chloe came to me and I wanted to, understand how that past would affect her present and affect really every aspect of her life, like how she would form relationships, what kind of job she would go into, things like that. Yeah. Anyone else? Um, can I ask a non-flicker question? Sure. Yeah. Um, how did all your research on sleep apnea and insomnia impact Oh, that's a good question. So I, <laughs> that's a good question. I, I mean, I've always been a little bit of an insomniac, so I don't think it did anything worse <laughs> than how it's already, how it was already going. But, um, yeah, I don't know if anything, I think I, I tend to ruminate about like really anything, but also my work. I mean, when I am having a hard time sleeping, a lot of times it's because I'm picking at like a plot point that's bothering me like a hole that I can't fix or if I'm stuck I'm just running a million scenarios through my head and constantly I'm waking up in the or just getting up in the middle of the night and jotting down ideas and stuff so if anything after writing this book I've tried to get better about that <laughs> so I'm you know I'm eliminating my phone time I'm trying to eliminate my phone time before like an hour before I go to bed I'm using white noise I'm trying to get a better sleep schedule down <laughs> well I'll let you know how it goes you. What's that? Age may help. Yeah, you. yeah. I used well. to be much more like that. Now it's, I can stay awake past ten. It's miraculous. <laughs> I know. So here we are. Um, right. So I'm, I should introduce Christina, who actually is a Minotaur author too. I boot. just yes, I, I right. we've talked When's on Twitter your book a few coming times. Out? Do we know yet? <laughs> it won't be this year. Oh bummer. I'm sorry. Yeah. Okay. Yes, you will. <laughs> yeah, it's nice to meet you too. I I saw you. I noticed like five minutes after I got up here. I was like, she looks familiar, and I think it's from Twitter. <laughs> Indeed. Anybody else have a question about anything? Yes, ma'am. Yeah. Oh, I just wanted to say how much I enjoyed your writing style. Oh, thank you. And it was definitely a book that I had a hard time putting down. Thank you. And I loved um, the not. There were several uh, characters that could have been the one mm. that did it, and you just kept us guessing, yeah. and it was, was not obvious. Oh, thank so you. I enjoyed that aspect. Thank you. That's a huge compliment when it comes to a thriller. <laughs> yeah, yeah, thank you so much. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I know that the whole 
like writing and publishing process this long, but how long from when you like first had the idea for either book mm -hmm. versus when you turned in like your final draft? Like this is and like what kind of like when you first heard your husband say that thing? <laughs> yeah. <and then laughs> turned in his final draft and was like, "This is the book that's going to be published." Like how long? Mm, um, it's different. It's different depending on the book for a variety of reasons. So a flicker in the dark, I took me about from the moment I had the idea and sat down and started to write to the moment that I started sending it out to agents was about a year and a half. So it took me a year and a half to write the first draft, but I was um, working a, a nine to five marketing job at the time. So I was pretty much writing it on my lunch break, which has a lot to do with that. Uh, um, and then, yeah, <laughs> I'm laughing because that's actually how Arthur Conan Doyle wrote Sherlock Holmes. He that's was the doctor do that had a very weak practice. And so since he had nothing to do, and I'm serious, since he had nothing to do on his lunch breaks, he wrote Sherlock Holmes. So here you are. Yeah, you're right. <laughs> here I am. That's, uh, yeah, that's what I did for, you know, a year and a half. And, um, and then it took, you know, from the moment we, I would say then another six months of editing. So we're at two years. And then from the moment we sold it to the moment it came out was another year and a half. So three and a half years for a flicker in the dark, pretty much. Um, and then all the dangerous things took me eight months to write the first draft. Uh, Cause at that point I was writing fiction full time. So I could just dedicate more time to it. Um, and then about another year from that point to publication. Albert, point out the way that you wrote, the, or the, because that's really a useful piece of advice. Yeah, so my agent told me, um, I got a two book deal. So basically when Minotaur bought A Flicker in the Dark, they bought whatever my next book would be. Um, and it wasn't, it didn't even exist yet. Uh, I, the idea wasn't even there. So that was scary. Um, <laughs> but yeah, but my agent gave me the best advice ever. He said, uh, okay, you've sold this, you're on the hook for something else, write your next book before a flicker in the dark ever comes out. Because once your book is out and you start getting reviews and other people's opinions in your ear, whether those are good or bad opinions, it gets a lot harder to like sit down and focus and trust your own voice. So um, I wrote all the dangerous things in that year and a half between when flicker was purchased and when it uh, was published. So in a lot of ways, all the dangerous things felt like another first book because it didn't even feel real. You know, there was nothing, a flicker wasn't even out yet. I had no idea how it would be received. Um, so the fear wasn't quite there, you know, it, it, but now, but now it's there. <laughs> yeah. but now you're working on your third book yeah. and you don't have that leisure. So is that a different process now for you? Yeah, it's, it's interesting. It, in a lot of ways, it feels like I'm back to a flicker in the dark and that I'm constantly fighting for the time to write. It's, uh, you know, it's my job to write books, but I'm also, there's so many other aspects of being a writer. There's events and there's promotion and there's traveling and, um, there's all kinds of marketing asks and, um, all that stuff is really great. But at the end of the day, I need to find the dedicated time to write, you know? So, um, so yeah, it's harder to just get in the uninterrupted headspace for this third one. Um, but, it, you know, I think you just have to be intentional about, like, time blocking, you know. So right now I'm focusing on this book. And then when I get home at the end of January, I have, you know, two months to, to finish it and focus it on, on really nothing else. So I'm looking forward to that. You may get to learn to write on airplanes. I try. Mm. Yeah, I Doesn't know. Doesn't work. It's so distracting. I, well, I'm really, like, paranoid that everyone's reading over my shoulder. Even, like, when my husband walks behind me in the dining room to, like, go to the fridge, I, like, push the screen down. I'm like, you can't look. And he's like, I'm not looking. So I have to be in, like, he's a... just hungry. Yeah, I know. I know. I have to be in, like, a private area with my back to the wall because I don't like anyone reading. I don't know why. So you haven't managed to, like turn a closet into a writing room or something? I have an office, uh, but it's, there's no, there's like a one very small window in there. It kind of feels like a cell. <laughs> like there's not a lot of natural light. So I mostly write either in coffee shops with my back to the wall or uh, at my dining room table because there's just natural light and it's, I don't know, cozier. If you can write in a coffee shop, you must have terrific concentration. I tend to enjoy the, background noise yeah yeah i don't know why um just the buzz of other people it's kind of nice especially you know working for myself and uh from home every day i don't have co-workers i don't have i'm just alone i talk to my dog <laughs> does he talk yeah yeah my dog <laughs> he's great <laughs> anyone else have a question 
Patrick, are there any? Mm. You're right. It absolutely is. <laughs> <laughs> Wish I did was the first book. No, it's the second book I did this year. It came out. We did Chain Ann last week on January 5th. That's right. It's a sleep clinic in which. It I just know. came out a week ago. Well, it's true. It's called Sleep No More. You'd think I could have figured that out from the title. Yeah. Whoever, whoever said that, thank you very much, because it was yeah. really going to annoy me I'm that I couldn't remember. <laughs> yeah. Um, one has to thank you for your, like, at the end of all the things you're saying, your father's up, don't raise your face. Thank you. <laughs> yeah. Oh, thank you. Yeah. Right. There's a ton of research. Yeah. Yeah. So I, I don't, um, outline and I don't really plot. There's a, have you guys heard of pantsers versus plotters? Yeah. So I'm a, so, uh, for those that don't know, a plotter is someone who plots their whole book. So they, they outline it and they know exactly what's going to happen. A pantser is someone who just flies by the seat of their pants and that's what I do. <laughs> so I have my idea. And then for me, if I, ha if I'm like picking on an idea, what makes it exciting enough for me to want to dedicate a year of my life to writing it is if I think of a twist and I'm like okay this takes the idea from like a good idea to something that I'm really excited about so I know and and I think since I don't outline like I'm at the starting line and I need to know where the finish line is and I can take a weird way to get there but at least I know where I'm going you know um so I always know the big twist and then the little ones usually come to me as I go yeah you're all also a person who prefers to write each book as a separate thing and not so far anyway not in any way a series so far yeah I guess never say never but I have my book I have so many ideas I guess by the time I'm done with one I'm kind of itching to get to the next right. one um so I can't see myself staying with the same stories and characters we talked longer, about this the other night with mary kubica and you know one of the things for you as readers i think is interesting is that everyone in stacy's books is at risk no one has to survive to be the hero no jack reacher is going to leave town mm. on a bus and carry <laughs> on to the next book so you can't you know there's no safety net for you as yeah. a reader every single person in the book can turn out to be either dead or bad or whatever it might yeah. be and i think that's a big appeal for um, those of you who prefer to write individual books but that used to be really hard to do publishers did not want to buy that kind of book really? back when i started the store everything was a, was a series because it was more marketable and readers attached to the characters and yeah you know whatever and now i'm seeing it's sort of the other way but i think a lot of that is because of the power of all these twists mm. if you twist it and twist it at the end you can't really bring those people back yeah you i have seen though that there's I agree with that, but I've seen some, um, like, um, Lisa Jewell had such a hit with the family upstairs and now there's the family room. But she said, because I did an event with her, she'll never do it again. She'll never, really? Okay. No. She said that was the one where there was enough interest in, yeah. you know, um, that yeah. she was able to write a sequel, but it is not what she wants not what to she do. Want, yeah. Because yeah. Peter Swanson is also coming out with a continuation of, of um, The Kind Worth Killing. Right, we're gonna. T I'm, he's, we're doing something in March. Okay, <laughs> I uh, forgot yeah. the date. <laughs> <laughs> so um, I find that really interesting because I prefer yeah. reading and writing standalones. But I've also seen some standalones that do really well do end up getting. You know, occasionally, they to occasionally there's enough left over yeah. or enough people survived, mm -hmm. which is another key point, you know, that, um, or the character that you like survived, yeah. that you can, you know, do another book with yeah. it. But I think it's great that there's more flexibility yeah. in publishing now that, you know, publishers will take a chance on, um, as, as Stacy said, it used to be if you got a two book deal, you already knew who the second book characters at least were going to be, right? So... They didn't have any idea what she was going to do next, and neither did she. I gave which him is like pretty unnerving. I gave him like two it. sentences. <laughs> I was like, "This is kind of 
probably going to be what it is, but yeah, yeah, right. I was like, it'll be a thriller. I can tell you that. <laughs> right. That's why to get, for those who are interested, you can't get, um, as a rule, in fiction, you can't get a contract unless you have completed a first book. The publisher has to believe that you can actually write an entire book, but they'll take a chance on a second one. If you're writing nonfiction, you can actually sell it on the idea. You don't mm -hmm. have to have... You don't have to have written it. Yeah. Um, but, you know, it. so your two-book deal depended on your having written a flicker One in book, the dark. yeah. And therefore, they assumed that you could yeah. actually write a second book. And it is. I mean, I think that's the whole, like, how you get your foot in the door. Because now I have an, another two-book deal with Minotaur, and, and um, those were just ideas, you know. So I didn't have to then write my third book and then... Right. Sell that to get the... No, it's the first book. It's just if, the if first one, done, yeah. If you've done well and they're happy with it, no, then you can mm -hmm. just go on with ideas. Yeah. yeah. And then also authors get paid in stages. You know, it's not like they just throw all the money at you at the beginning and say, we hope it works. Yeah. They pay you They pay you when you do things, you know, they have a schedule. Yeah. And that works out pretty well, too. Probably better that they stagger the money anyway. You could go crazy if you got it all at once. Yeah, because it depends on your advance. <laughs> Big shopping yeah. trip. <laughs> yeah. Right. Anything else? Patrick, you know anything from the ad? Oh, yeah. Uh, so, no, so far with my two books, the titles have always, they've changed. Um, a Flicker in the Dark, I, I just kind of threw a work in progress title on it when I was sending it out to, um, when my agent and I were sending it out because we couldn't land on one, and it was The Shadows. But funny enough, and they actually, they managed to work that into a lot of the marketing copy, which I think was kind of neat. Um, and there was, you know, some of the language in the book kind of alludes to that. But the day we sent it out uh, to all the different editors, uh, Alex North's The Shadows was published. And so then we had to reach back out to everyone and be like, we're going to change the title, I swear. So that was Flickr. And then all the dangerous things when I wrote it was called Hush Little Baby. Uh, yeah, I know. <laughs> and uh, we ended up changing that for a variety of Are reasons. Sure, that Mary Higgins Clark didn't write that. I there was. I think she did. Yeah, I think, or very similar. To there it. was uh, that had something to do with it. Is yeah. there were a few hush little babies out there, so we wanted to find something. It a little just different. sounds like a Mary Higgins Clark mm. title. Right. I, it kind of reminded me of like a the hand that rocks the cradle. I thought it was just a little eerie. Um, but I also love all the dangerous things. So yeah, yeah, it's a very good title. Yeah, right. Well, anybody else? I think you had one. Uh, this is the first time I come to a book signing like that, and I really like it. Oh, good. Uh, I haven't really written on the book. I'm really not a reader. She is. She only comes on 50 books last year. Wow. Anyway, and since she brought me here, I'm just here visiting with my daughter. And she, she before I came here, she said, please don't ask any questions. <laughs> <laughs> Oh yeah. Yeah. Yeah, that it's pretty close to it. Yeah, I mean, <laughs> yeah, you should write a book. It's uh, so I have this big idea, and I have the ending that I'm working towards. Um, and then of course you kind of start to think of your characters. Um, so you know, for all the dangerous things, there's Isabel, and then of course there's her son, and uh, you know, there's her husband, and then you're thinking about, okay, well, there's the detective on the case, there's her parents. You're just kind of mapping out everyone in the main character's life, and you start making little character sketches in your mind and then um i have like scenes that come to me and i'll jot down those scenes i know like i need i want to write these five scenes and a lot of writing a book then is like you said connecting the dots like i have my cast of characters i have my idea of my ending i have these six scenes that i'm really excited about and then you just kind of plop the characters in a room and make them talk <laughs> and they'll find their way through those scenes um that's that's how i do it everyone does it differently but yeah 
that's really true. Everybody does do it differently. Yeah. There is no right way to write a book. Mm -mm. Just, I also think, and I've, I've said this many times, I think there's a certain amount of superstition involved. Whatever worked for the author to write their first book, it worked, right? So why do it differently? And I think I think the pattern kind of gets set for that first book, and then yeah. it's scary to deviate from it. I think there's definitely that, but there's also a lot of writers, myself included, I've found suffer from imposter syndrome because we look at the ways other authors are right. doing it, and we're like, oh, I should be doing that. Like, I have a lot of, because I don't outline or plot, I'm like, I'm, I'm doing this all wrong, you know, but I think you do have to have confidence in the way you do it, even if it's not the way someone else does it. It's clearly, you know, if you're writing a book you're proud of, it's working. Yeah, well, so I mean, you can write it backwards. Yeah. Some people start at the end and write back to the beginning. You can go the other direction from the front to the back. I've known authors who started in the middle and yeah. just kept writing around it like this. <laughs> I know one really successful author who writes random scenes and then eventually has to put them all together. Yeah. And, and the book assumes a, a shape. That well, she will tell you this anxiety. one looks like a snake. <laughs> yeah. You know, um, and, and it, it really is it's just how your mind works yeah and what what was successful for you mm -hmm. yeah yeah because right. i you know i spend a lot of time editing i think since i don't know exactly where the book's going when i write the first draft the first draft sometimes when i go back and read it myself i can tell i have like five different ideas and i'm not I haven't committed to one yet. You know what I mean? And then when I can read it later with fresh eyes, that's when I'm like, okay, this is the road I need to take. So then you cut out all the extraneous stuff. Yeah, you end up doing more work in the, do in the writing, mm -hmm. but the plotters do more work up before the writing. Yep. Yeah. So I don't think that there's any time saving involved. It's just. That is true. You know, it's just when it works. The, where the time is spent. Yeah. Because uh, I can write a first draft fairly quickly. I get hung up in the editing. So. Right. Yeah. Well, um, I think you probably all would like to get your book signed. Um, but before we do that, I always give away, uh, when I remember most of the time, <laughs> I like to give away a book. And I'm very fond of a first novel. And this is, I'm giving it away because it is a dinged up copy. So this is, um, <laughs> the publisher said that rather than send it back, we could give it away because it costs so much money to send it back. Why do it? Um, and this is a book which... Um, it's set in Soviet Russia in the 1970s in Siberia and involves a girl who uh, gets caught up in the whole Soviet-era gymnastics thing mm -hmm. where that was a way out. And her mother, when she was young, simply disappeared. Nobody has ever figured out what happened to her mother. It's not a mystery. It's a it's a more a coming-of-age story. But with everything that's going on right now with Russia and the Ukraine, I think it's a particularly good book. I also love talking to the author, who's really fascinating. And you can watch that. Um, if you go back and look for Ray Meadows, you can see her in one of the videos up on our website. So do you know how many numbers we had? Larry? Pat. Okay, so I would like you to pick a number between 1 and 19. Oh. Notice that I throw the onus on the author. <laughs> I know. Right. Uh, I'm going to go with 11. Okay. And if you can identify. Oh, it's you. <laughs> All right. So I will give you this copy of Winterland. I think it's, it might even be autographed by the author. But as I said, it's slightly slightly damaged. But it will, it will still read well regardless. <laughs> right. So let's thank... Stacy, for coming to see us. Thank you guys so left. much. Hello. We hope you're enjoying our programs and podcasts with authors. We'd like to expand them, and your help would be appreciated. Please make a donation at poisonedpenfoundation.org. 100% of the proceeds will go to help connect authors with readers in this difficult time. Thank you.